Starting to read, we're going to read this whole passage this morning, Acts chapter 10, verse 1 onward. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, 
I came without raising any objection. May I ask you why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Just as we are gathered together this morning, we want to hear what the Lord would tell us. You know, this account of Cornelius begins with a supernatural encounter. An angel of the Lord speaking directly and distinctly to Cornelius tells Cornelius to send for Simon, who is called Peter. Cornelius then sends men to Joppa, which is more than a day's journey away. Peter and the men arrive in Caesarea about four days after the angel had first spoken to Cornelius, and all so that Cornelius and those associated with him could listen to Peter. All of this effort, all of this time that has passed, at least four days, right? The men going there and then all coming back and all of these kinds of things. It begs this question. Wouldn't it have been easier for the angel to just tell Cornelius what's the gospel message? I mean, Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He recognizes that this angel is sent by God. He says, oh, what do you want to say to me? Wouldn't it have been easier for the angel to just say, hey, Jesus came into this world. Jesus died for your sins. And you have come to know the true and living God, but you now need to know Jesus. And you need to worship Jesus. And you need to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Couldn't he have just told him? And you know, these in the past few weeks even, as we've been reading through these early chapters in Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we read how the angel told Philip to go to the desert road to meet up with the Ethiopian eunuch, that African court official, just to share the gospel message. Couldn't the angel have told the eunuch? I mean, all that effort for Philip to go over there and to meet him and to tell him and, you know, why is it that angels or the Lord himself doesn't just share the good news of salvation with people? Now, again, as we looked at it with, with, with the conversion of Saul, Jesus does speak. Jesus does intervene. There's the dramatic events and things that take place. And we've heard and we know of dreams and visions and people encountering the Lord directly. But in general, in general, why does God say, I want you to go and tell somebody else about Jesus? Well, there are at least three reasons for why the Lord has given us human beings this great commission to share the gospel message and to make disciples. At least three, there are more you could think of and come up with and so on. But I want to highlight at least three reasons. Reason number one, when we submissively obey Jesus to share his truth with others, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not easy, even when we may not be well received and so on, when we depend on Jesus for wisdom 
and for the power to do this effectively. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to overflow from us for the benefit of the hearer, and we're speaking words of grace because the Holy Spirit takes control of our tongue. We yield our tongue. We are, our tongues are tamed by the Holy Spirit and we are letting the Holy Spirit speak through us. When all of that is happening in us, it impacts and builds our relationship with Jesus. So as we are going, in our going, in our obeying, in our being used by the, by the Lord, in our being filled with the Spirit, in our expression and manifestation of spiritual gifts to the body of Christ and to those outside the body of Christ, the Lord is establishing and building his relationship with us. Right? So he says, go do these things because as you do this, I am making you more like me. I am transforming you. I am building you up. I am involved in your life. The second reason that God tells us human beings to go do this is that when we tell others about what God has done for us as human beings, we have a message that is relevant for them. Because only we, not angels, and not even Jesus himself, can speak of how we were once in darkness, but now we have seen the light. Only we can speak of how we were delivered, how we were set free. Only we can joyfully share of the mercy of God, of the grace of God, of the forgiveness of God, of the faithfulness of God, of the goodness of God, of the promises of God for all humanity. Only humans can do that. And so God says that as we go and share, only we can speak of relationships that are restored. Only we can speak of minds and bodies that are healed. Only we can speak of miracles. Only we can talk about hope. So the Lord says, you have a message that is relevant for that person, that is necessary for that person to hear. Your testimony, your word, your experience shared with that person makes a difference. And then the third reason why the Lord has told us to go share the good news. When we willingly share the good news of Jesus Christ with others who are not in our immediate sphere of influence, they're not, they're not associated with us directly we have to make an effort to go to them. And we're going to people who are not like us. When we witness, they don't believe what we're believing, they're not doing what we're doing, they're not living the way that we are, and God is telling us to go to that person. When we do that, when we go to them and share with them of the good news of Jesus, and we witness the Lord working in their life, and we witness the transformation that takes place in their lives, then we are transformed. Our thinking changes. Our lives are impacted. And we build a relationship. We build community with those set of people, which never existed before. So if all that God wanted us to do was have a relationship with him, 
then we could just say, all right, right now, we just worship you, Lord. You send your angels. Go and tell that person, that person, great. Thank you, Lord. I prayed. I've interceded for them. Thank you for doing that. But God wants us to build a relationship with each other. And he calls us into a community, into a body, into a fellowship. And he says, when you go and you speak to that person, and you see the work that I'm doing in their life, and you see the transformation that I bring, you yourself are impacted, and you now have a connection. That person is no longer a stranger. That person is now your brother, your sister. That person is no longer someone below, someone above, someone uh, unlike. That person is now united with you in Christ. And as we build that biblical community, which is what the book of Acts is speaking about, this morning, I want to focus on this personal transformation that takes place in us for the sake of the church. And through these particular verses in Acts 10. You see, it matters how our mindsets are formed. It's interesting that when God speaks to Peter in a vision, he does so in a way that Peter can immediately relate to. You know why? Peter was hungry. So God shows him some animals. And he says, kill and eat. Now, God is showing him animals that would be considered unclean by the very law that God had given. But Peter is hungry and God says to him, here, kill and eat. Notice Peter's reaction. He doesn't say, Get away from me, Satan. Don't try to tempt me to disobey God. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. No. Peter says, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Three times the Lord tells Peter to kill and eat. Three times, Peter refuses. Why did Peter refuse the Lord? He's not refusing Satan. He's not refusing some man. God is saying something to him directly, and he recognizes that it's God. And he says, no. Why? What is, what's going on in his mind? You know, in Genesis chapter 1, God tells Adam and Eve, I've given you all the plants all the green plants, all the trees as such, all the seeds and fruits. I've given them as food for both human beings and animals. Then as you keep going, sin happens, fall, all of these things happen, people go away from God. But after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God tells Noah and his descendants that they can kill animals and eat meat. But he tells them not to eat blood because... Life is in the blood. Then in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, when the children of Israel, so now you have this whole history that has taken place and the children of Israel are in Egypt in bondage and everything else and he brings them out. And as he brings them out and he says, you are now going as my chosen people to my chosen land to set in place the coming of the Messiah. And guess what? I've got a whole bunch of laws for you for what you should eat. And in Leviticus 11, he goes through this extensive list of what kinds of animals 
birds and insects the children of Israel can eat or cannot eat. And Leviticus chapter 11 verses 46 through 47 it ends the chapter ends this way these are the regulations concerning animals birds every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten so from that time forward the Jewish people maintained these dietary laws along with all the other laws covering circumcision and sacrifice and harvest and tithing and conduct and along with all the laws they're maintaining these dietary laws by the time of Jesus and the early church the Jewish leaders had codified these laws and established very strict guidelines about every aspect of life and particularly about eating food that was fit or kosher. The word kosher just means that it's fit, it's appropriate, it's meeting the regulations that God has ordained. Right? So they were very diligent about this. And the Pharisees, as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, were especially strict about observing the law and never eating anything that was unclean. Jesus and the disciples would have observed the law, and although Jesus did not keep all the extra restrictions of the Pharisees, he would have kept the dietary laws of God. He would have maintained these dietary laws. So when Peter refuses to kill and eat unclean animals, in his mind, it is because he is keeping the law of God. These practices, these regulations, had been handed down through multiple generations. Parents would reinforce these rules with their children. The Jewish culture had developed their identity and their distinctiveness through these practices. Keeping kosher, being circumcised, doing all of these things. They were an, a distinct group of people. And even today, Jewish people all over the world continue these practices and particularly these dietary laws of keeping kosher. They go through great lengths. And I, I went to school in a Jewish university, had a number of Jewish friends, went to many of their homes and Passover in particular, if those of you who know this, they have a different set of dishes that they will use because in Passover time you're supposed to use or have food that is unleavened. Right? And so they have a different set of dishes, one for serving things that have leaven in it and another set of dishes to serve that things that are unleavened. And they will go through great pains, great trouble to maintain these regulations. So these mindsets, these thoughts, here's the thing. Our thoughts, Jewish people's thoughts, disciples' thoughts, our thoughts are formed primarily through our experiences, our education, what we're taught, what we're instructed, and our culture. Thoughts lead to actions, and the actions lead to experiences that either reinforce or modify our thoughts. And the cycle repeats. Right? We have a thought about something, it's informed in some way, 
we take some action on that, that leads to a set of experiences. We say, okay, that thought was right. Or we say, oh, that thought needs to be adjusted in some way. And we start to move in this way. But over time, these ways of thinking, they form mindsets. They form strongholds of the mind. This is the phrase that the Bible uses. Strongholds of the mind that are very difficult to change. So when 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 admonishes us to demolish strongholds and take every thought captive, it is just one of many scriptures that remind us of the importance of our thought lives, how we think. How we think is how we are. We looked at that verse earlier too. So our mindsets, our worldview, our strongholds that are here matter. And as children of God, we may have formed mindsets that we are confident, are good, and right. But here's the important point to remember. Sometimes, even when we base our thoughts on the things of God, the final conclusions, the mindsets that we draw from those thoughts may not be right. Peter had never violated the dietary laws of God. He was doing a good thing. He was obedient to God. His mindset had been formed by the law of God. But the observance of the law had become such a strong mindset that he even refutes God about that statement. The observance of the law had become stronger in his mind than obeying the giver of the law. You see that? Now, Peter was obedient enough to the Lord that even after he sort of rebuts the Lord's word to him, he goes with the men sent by Cornelius and enters Cornelius' home because the Holy Spirit tells him to go. So he, he listens to the Holy Spirit, he obeys the Holy Spirit, he goes with these men, he enters Cornelius' home. But all through the journey, because the Bible tells us he's thinking about this vision. He's like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? You know, it says that right there. And then all through this journey, about two days, his journey, right? All through this journey, the Holy Spirit must have been speaking to Peter, who's thinking about this. Because by the time he gets to Cornelius' home, and he hears from Cornelius as, as to why he was sent for, Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God showed Peter animals. Peter was refusing to violate dietary laws he had followed all his life. But Peter realizes that what God was showing him was not about animals or dietary laws. Peter realizes that he had been thinking of non-Jewish people 
as unclean, as impure. And Peter realizes that it's not about his calling animals impure or unclean. He should not be calling any one impure or unclean. And Peter realizes that his mindset has to be transformed. You see, as much as we pay attention to how our mindsets are formed, it also matters how our mindsets are transformed. You know, there's a lot of debate as to why God gave these specific dietary laws. Why did he tell the children of Israel to do this? So one school of thought is that God instituted these restrictions for reasons of health and hygiene. Right? And those who have or experience some benefit from maybe being vegetarian or avoiding some of these foods that are mentioned, you're going, yes, amen, amen. You know, God did this because he was concerned for their health and hygiene. The unclean birds, animals, insects, even in ancient Jewish writings, they were described as being indigestible, injurious, generally harmful, unhealthy. And there is historical and modern evidence to suggest that there's some truth to that. But that relegates God to the health inspector. You know, Moses, the health inspector, and God, the, you know, the Food and Drug Administration, telling you what's good and what's not good for you to eat. A second school of thought is that God gave these laws to set the children apart, set the children of Israel apart from everybody else. They were going to do something that nobody else was doing. So their distinctive cultural identity would be the continuation of the covenant established through Abraham. They already had circumcision. They already had these practices that God had instituted. But now he's giving them some very specific commands about their diet, their, how they would eat. And at the, at the time, there were all sorts of pagan things going on, sacrifices and all sorts of stuff with regard to how people ate even. Right? And so God is setting apart these people and he's showing that their practices were showing them to be chosen by God. A chosen people doing different things from the others so that God's purpose could be fulfilled through them. So that's the second line of thought. That, you know, it, is, it is that cultural identity. The third school of thought is God gave these laws so that through the observance of the law, the people would be holy. Right? And there's precedent for that. There's merit to that. There's, there are verses that tie these concepts together. And God says to them, do these things and you will be holy to me. Right? You're consecrated, set apart, but you are in your obedience and in your consecration, you are being sanctified. You are made holy. And so that's a third school of thought. So physical behavior, culture, cuisine, social norms, defined by the law, all led the Jews, the Jewish people, to separate themselves from others. But, let, but there's another important point or a school of thought or a lesson that we have to, to consider. Last week as we were considering the God of hope who gives us hope, we looked at Romans chapter 15 verse 4 which says, For everything that was written in the past 
was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Everything that was written was taught to teach us, was written to teach us, right? Just as what was written in the past provides hope, it provides life, it provides all these instructions, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So that is, all the Scriptures and all that the Scriptures contain, all the law that the Scripture contains, all the commands of God, all the regulations, all of that was meant to point us to Jesus. When we were studying the Gospel of Luke, we saw in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is speaking to the two disciples, he, Jesus himself is explaining that the law and the prophets was all about him. They were all pointing to him. They were showing how he should come and what he will do. So the law made us aware of these things. It made us aware of sin. It made us aware of what God would provide. But as Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 says, the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the laws of God, including the dietary laws that address our physical bodies and our appetites, our desires, in, even though those laws are all there and that's about being consecrated to God, those laws are all about being a guardian to bring us to Jesus. Now that we know Jesus, now that we know that the Messiah has come in fulfillment of the law and the prophets, our lives are not defined by observing the law, but rather by being personally and intimately related to Jesus, which leads us to willingly and joyfully obey Jesus. So it's not the, the imposition of the law, oh, I must obey this. But rather we say, oh Lord, I want to obey you. You the fulfillment of everything. You the one that speaks in these beautiful, wonderful, gracious words. I want to obey you joyfully and willingly. We continue to benefit from observing the laws that are relevant for us today, including the dietary laws, but we can never ignore Jesus for the sake of the law. So which brings us to Peter's realization and therefore our own realization. We cannot consider anyone impure or unclean. Next week, when we continue this account of Cornelius, we'll consider how God accepts the Gentiles and how he reaches out to the whole world and what happened through those incidents. Why is this highlighted? And what happened as the word started to be spread and how the people in the church, the believers in the church, reacted to this news of Cornelius and all these people receiving the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that next week. But this week, I want to challenge our thinking about Gentiles about those that are not like us. You see, physical behavior, culture, cuisine, 
social norms are not meant to separate us. They are to be understood in the context of bringing us together in Christ Jesus. Cornelius, who was a non-Jewish Roman centurion living in Caesarea. Caesarea was an extremely pagan city where it would have been very difficult to worship Yahweh. It, there's the history, the historical account that Jews were slaughtered in Caesarea. So it was a very difficult place to be able to worship, to be a God-fearing man. But in the middle of all of that, we read that Cornelius was a God-fearing man who gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. In his way of thinking, Peter was not thinking of Cornelius. Peter and the early church would have missed Cornelius and the Gentiles. They wouldn't have paid attention. They would not have noticed this God-fearing man. Maybe some minor interaction, but they wouldn't have paid attention. God got Peter's attention and told him to do something completely different, changed his mind because God had a plan even before the creation of the world that when sin would enter the world and human beings because of sin would split from being one race and would go into all these different tribes and ethnicities and differences. God knew that when that happened and there would be division that would continue and when man tried to become like God or tried to usurp the power of God and God would divide them even further, when all those differences would be amplified amongst human beings, God chose one man, nondescript, ordinary man, Abraham, and said through his lineage will come a Messiah. I'm choosing you and I'm putting in place a plan so that the Messiah will come. And that through the death and resurrection of that Lord and Savior, that Messiah for all people, not just the children of Abraham, not just the children of Israel, but all the world would have the opportunity to be restored in relationship with the true and living God. Before the Messiah came, we see a number of instances where those that were sincerely seeking God found him. Some that were finding God even separate from the children of Israel, but some who found God and were joined to the children of Israel. And even in the very lineage of Jesus, we have people who were not children of Israel. Ruth and Rahab and others who came into the lineage. So God is doing all of that, even in the past. But through the coming of Jesus, he's now making a way for us who had been separated in every single way possible to now be reunited. When we come together in the body of Christ, in the church, it is sad that we divide on all these particular things. Culture, backgrounds, cuisine, appearance, race. Because the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, here, where? In the body of Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We learn from every culture what the Lord has done to draw people to himself so that in spite of our differences, we are united in Christ Jesus in what really matters. So much of what is going on around us is division for the sake of things that do not matter. But when we are united in Christ Jesus, when we say, Lord Jesus, this is what you have done, when we focus on the truth, on the life, on the way, when we focus on Jesus himself, it is all Christ and only Christ and in Christ that these things matter. Then we're able to respond to the Lord by asking the Lord to transform our thinking. Our mindsets have been with us, our strongholds have been with us for so long that we are convinced that they are right. The way that we think of people, the way that we think of situations, the way that we deal with people, the way that we take a law of God that was meant for a specific purpose and apply it to something that it should not be applied to. When we do all of those things, we actually violate the word of God. And it takes us humbly and repentantly coming to the Lord to say, Lord God, I've made a mistake here. I've treated people improperly. I've judged. I've been prejudiced. I've been unkind, uncaring. I have not had compassion. I have justified all sorts of wrong behaviors on my part and on the part of others. And I ask you, Lord, to transform my thinking. Because, you know, when you ask the Lord to transform your thinking that way, when you ask the Lord to change your mind, you're not asking something that is separate from his will. He says we are to be transformed into his image by the renewing of our minds, of our thoughts. If the moment we became Christian, we had all good thoughts, right thoughts, best thoughts, there's no need for us to be renewed in our minds. God would just say, oh, you're good. You're good, right? You, you know, every day, you, I want you to be obedient in these particular things and to become and build your capabilities, but in your mind, hey, you're good. But no, he says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And maybe you went through a whole bunch of things as you came to the Lord first. And then over time, some of those thinkings some of those thoughts got corrupted, got influenced, got affected, even by well-meaning people. Maybe even by what you think is the word of God. Maybe by people in the body of Christ even. 
But maybe your thinking has been impacted in such a way that right now, God needs to renew it. God needs to set it right. God needs to say, you have been thinking about it this way. I need you to think about it like this. And so, when we apply, we apply this word of God by carefully evaluating what we believe and asking the Lord for wisdom. In our daily prayer time, in these 21 days of prayer and fasting, as we're focusing on Proverbs chapter 1 through 4, we're calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, we need your wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting, it's the launching. It's not the thing that just we do first and then we go on. No, the fear of the Lord continues in our life. The fear of the Lord keeps us in reverence of him. The fear of the Lord causes us to continue to obey him. But when we are moving in that way, we're asking him for wisdom. And we're saying, Lord, we need to know what to do. How do I deal with this matter? How should I think about this? I tend to think about it in these ways. I tend to respond to these situations in these ways. Lord, transform my thinking. Show me what I'm believing. Is it right? Is it godly? Is it appropriate? Is it kind? Is it compassionate to others? Am I thinking of people correctly? And when we ask the Lord to do that, when we truly bring our minds to him, our thoughts to him, that's what it means to take captive our thoughts. It's not just, you know, it's, it's not the, an, Im an imagery of some sort of garrison, captivity. No, it's to say, Lord God, oh, I'm thinking this way. I don't want to assume that this thought is right. I want to evaluate it. I want to bring it before you. I want to submit it to you. I want to say, Lord God, I have been thinking like this maybe for a long time. Is this right? Should I be thinking like this? How should I be transformed? And when we do that, when we ask the Lord for wisdom, when we ask the Lord for changing our thinking, sometimes our stinking thinking, you know, the Lord will answer. The Lord will answer. Because the Lord cares for us to be changed and relate to one another. If we hold on to the old ways of thinking, we will not connect with people. We will seek God because we know God is right. But we won't seek out people. Our thoughts, our mindsets, our strongholds will influence the way that we deal with people. And God desires for us to love them, to reach out to them, to notice them, to see that he's speaking to them, that he's drawing them to himself, that he is causing people all over the world that call on the name of the Lord, that seek him, that try to find out who this true and living God is. God is revealing himself to them and he does it through us, not through angels, not through other things. He says, you, you go, you tell them. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Lord, your call to us is that we would be sensitive to your commission. Lord, we don't want to obey the great commission to go only to those that will 
receive what we say. We want to go to those who may not listen because they are so different from us. They don't think like us. They don't, they're not in our sphere. They're, not, they're just so different and we say, oh, I don't think so. But Lord God, let there not be any, any, any ungodly thought, any ungodly belief, any stronghold of our mind that keeps us from reaching out to those that you want us to reach out to, that keeps us from loving those that you want us to love, that keeps us, Lord, from declaring all of the good news of Jesus and for wishing, for Lord, for, for hoping in expectant anticipation, for hoping that every one of those people that hears your word will come to know you and be joined with us in fellowship. Father, today, for every person listening online, here in person, those that may hear this word later, I pray, Father, that you would touch our hearts, that you would transform our minds. Lord, first and foremost, to know you, to understand your truth, to be saved. But in that salvation, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be joined with one another in the body of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.